Hello everyone and welcome to the very first episode of the brand new Inline G Flute Podcast with me, your host, Gareth Houston. Thank God I got that right. Okay, I've done that about 30 times now, I'm done. Okay, anyway. So listen, I know what you're thinking. What is the Inline G Flute Podcast? What is an Inline G? No, it's not me. Uh, What's a flute podcast? Is this podcast just for flute players or is it for everybody? And does the world really need another straight white lad with a podcast? Well, I'm going to answer all those questions right now. So, Inline G. I'm very excited to finally get this off the ground. A few people have been asking for it. Thank you very much. It's been flattering to know that people want it. Um, yeah, it's great to get it off the ground. So, Inline G. It's a brand new podcast covering all things flute. We'll be doing topical events in the flute world to album reviews. We'll be having special guests and I'll be exploring everything here. Is this podcast only for flutists? No. Well, I hope not anyway. I'll be doing my best to explain everything in a simple and coherent way that both people who are brand new to the flute as well as seasoned professionals will hopefully get something out of it. Okay? So... Why is it different to other flute podcasts? There are some amazing flute podcasts out there. Um, But what makes this one different? Well, first of all, I've got an Irish accent. So I've got that over all of you. I'm not American. And unlike the others, I will probably get demonetized for swearing at some point. So this is the only flute podcast where you're going to get swearing guaranteed. Um, And also, to be fair, I'm going to be up for tackling some of the more controversial issues of the flute world. There's nothing really off limits here. Um, I'll be exploring it all. And finally, the last question, does the world need another straight white lab with a podcast? No, it doesn't, but you're getting one. So yeah, there we are. So what's on the menu today? This is episode number one. I'm very, very excited to finally get this off the ground. Today, we're gonna be doing a few things. I'm gonna give you all a little introduction to me and who I am. Then we are going to get straight into a controversial debate. We're getting straight into the deep end. We're going to be talking about the pros and cons and the classic debate of inline G versus offset G. Very apt for the name of the podcast, which I'll explain a little bit later on for those non-food player. And then at the end, I've got a really special album review. A set of album reviews actually today. To get the ball rolling on the whole album review thing, I've done something a little bit special. So bear with me, guys. Okay, introduction. Who am I? Well, a lot of you might know me from social media. So I have a very active Instagram account, Gareth Houston Flute. I'm also on Facebook, although, yeah, who's really on Facebook these days? Apart from old people and racists, but I am there. Um, And I browse TikTok, I'm not on TikTok. So most of you know me from Instagram, probably. If you don't know me from social media, you might know me personally, or you might have heard me or studied with me or something like that. So I'll give you a quick rundown of my professional experience as a flute player and yeah basically trying to explain what gives me the right to go and start a flute podcast why you should bother listening to someone like me so a really quick summary as you can hear first of all i am not american or british or you're why i'm european um by the beautiful sultry tones that i have the lovely accent um i'm joking i'm from belfast belfast in the north of ireland so I was born there um, and I grew up in the flute band tradition originally there. So that'll be a podcast episode in its own one day, the flute band tradition of Northern Ireland. But anyway, I grew up learning traditional flute through there. My first teacher was my grandfather. 
and then I, about the age of 14, decided to take flute seriously, studied with a couple of flute players back in Ireland, Colin Fleming and my uncle Glenn being the most notable. I went to the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama in Cardiff for my bachelor degree. Um, I got a scholarship there, so off I went for four years when I was 18. Got my bachelor degree in flute performance from there, studied with Roger Armstrong, Eva Stewart, some pretty big names from the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. I then went on to Paris, where in Paris I did my master's at the École Normale de Musique de Paris. My teacher there was uh, Catherine Canton, who was the flute solo of L'Opéra de Paris, the Paris Opera, up until about two years ago actually, Catherine retired. Um, and I also studied with Magdalene Meunier, the principal flute of the Orchestre Philippe de Radio France, the Radio France Philharmonic Orchestra. Then I moved to Germany about four years ago, five years ago, something around there, something around that. God, it's been a long time. Um, originally to study with Robert Wynne here at the Hochschule for Music und Tanzkön. Um And now I'm out in the big bad world of music. So I make a living for myself of performing as much as I can. That'll be orchestral music as a freelancer, chamber music and solo music and basically whatever I can get my hands on, to be totally honest. I've done some recording, some mild composition. I've done some video game stuff. I've done some stuff for movies, mainly independent indie stuff. Um, But yeah. I've done a bit of everything. I work currently as well as an Irish traditional musician. I play in an Irish folk band. Um, and I have this beautiful music studio, which the audio listeners cannot see, but for the visual, for the video listeners, the watchers, the people watching on YouTube, um, you can see this is my music studio. So I offer lessons yeah, here in Cologne in Germany and online as well. So yeah, that's how I make a living. Um, I hope that's a good introductory to me. Um, if you have any questions about that, please feel free to ask them. I'll, I'll speak to you guys more directly about questions and suggestions later on in the podcast. Um, and yeah, the next thing I suppose we have to talk about is what flute I play. As flute players, we always find it super interesting. So my gorgeous flute is right here. Now, this is... Oh, she's a beauty. She is a real beauty, this flute. Um, this is a Sankyo 5 carat model. Okay, so... They actually don't make these anymore, thank you. It's five carat gold, obviously quite a low percentage of gold there, more silver than gold. The body of the flute is gold, as you guys can see, and the keys are silver. Now, for flute players, you'll recognize that gold flutes are very common. Um, this is a more reasonable price for a gold flute because it's just five carat. This costs about 10,000 euro. Uh, this was made, I think, in 1991. I might be wrong on that. They don't make them anymore, so you just have to pick them up where you can. Um, bells and whistles, not much on them. Okay, so I have an inline G, obviously. I have a C foot joint, I have no gizmo, I have no split E. It's a pretty run-of-the-mill instrument. And I'll talk about why later on for that. But it is a beautiful flute. If anyone ever gets the chance to try a Sankyo 5 carat, really do so. If you ever see one popping up in a music shop, jump on them. There's not many of them, and they are stunning instruments. But um, for the non-flute people, yeah, I just said 10,000 euro there. Casually drop that in. Do flutes really cost 10,000 euro? Yeah, they do. They really do. Um, and that's not that expensive, to be, to, to be honest. They go a lot more expensive. 
The highest end flutes, you're looking at 50 to 60,000 euros for a flute. Um, we don't go quite as high as the violins, you know, the things like Stradivarius, which will go, they'll be fetching millions. We don't go up to that price. There's a couple of reasons for that. The main reason why the flutes are so expensive is, yes, obviously the great craftsmanship and uh, attention to detail and quality of the craftsmanship, but also the metal it's made of. So as I said, my flute's five karat gold, which in terms of percentage of gold is quite low. It's probably less less gold than it is silver. It's a mix of gold and silver. Um, but the reason we like to play on gold, or some people like to play on gold, it's not for everyone, but one of the reasons gold is popular is because it vibrates faster, essentially. So when you blow against it, it's a denser metal, it vibrates quicker, and you get a very brilliant, fresh, gorgeous sound. A golden sound is really the only way to describe it. When you hear a gold flute, you know it's a gold flute. Um, I love the sound of a gold flute, so I really want one. I couldn't afford a 50,000 euro one, but these five carat ones are within the reasonable price range if you can get your hands on one. So I picked that up. Um, to compare it to, I don't know, a car, this is like, a, this is a Rolls Royce of a flute, okay, it's a Rolls Royce, it's a high-end flute, yeah, 10,000 euro is a lot of money, but this is my job, this is the main tool I need for my job, and yeah, I, you know, a Rolls Royce would cost more than 10,000 euros, so yeah, it's a pretty good bargain in the end, um, so yeah, it's a beautiful flute, so the main topic I want to cover today, and we're going to get stuck into the deep end here, and we're going to go straight into the controversial side, is inline versus offset G. So, title of the podcast is the inline G flute podcast. I'm very proud of that name because you know my name's Gareth, begins with a G, but also inline G is a feature of a flute. Okay, so for non-flute people or for yeah anyone really out there who doesn't know anything about instruments, this key here is the G key. That means it plays the note G. Okay, really simple. Inline G, if you guys can see here, inline G means that this G key is in line with all the other keys, okay? The other possibility you can get is an offset G. As it says on the tin, G is offset, okay? So it'll be just slightly sticking out. One of the reasons for that as well is because it makes it easier to stretch, okay? We're gonna get into the pros and cons of it in a minute, okay? Because um, I've I've done some really interesting research for you guys and I think, I enjoyed this. I was up to like four in the morning last night looking this up and like the week before i have been and i've been talking to everyone about this i find it a fascinating subject this wasn't going to be the theme of the first podcast um but i've got so into it now that it just it took me away so hopefully there's something fresh in this so anyway that's the difference between the inline g and the offset g if you have an offset g you will have an extra rod so you have the rod here that runs the whole way down my inline g connects to this rod if you have an offset one there'll be a small rod here an extra one separate okay now, a few things about that. It's easier to repair, okay? So when we're getting into the pros and cons of inline versus offset, it's easier to repair an offset G because you can take the mechanism off and repair it easily. Um, while an inline G, you have to take the entire rod off, okay? So that's one of the big points about it. Um, the general belief, the reason we designed offset G, okay? The general reason for it is it's meant to be easier for the hand. This finger, the finger, your ring finger, is shorter than the one beside it. This is the one that plays G. So unless this finger is longer than this finger, technically it should make sense to go up here. So this the 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 current research and the current consensus, to be totally honest, is that offset G is better. And I've done a lot of I've done a lot of research on this. Okay, and I think it is. 
I don't think there's a really good answer for why it's not on a technical level. Now, I don't play offset G, nor will I. I enjoy, I love my inline G flute and I will keep it. And I will hopefully explain why. But, yeah, we're going to get into this, okay? One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this as well is I've seen a lot of American flute players play on offset G. And they talk about it a lot. Uh, Robert Dick, one of the very famous flute players in America, has came out and said that he thinks offset G is categorically better for every player. Now, that's excluding... Um, people who are used to inline G and stuff, it's not including them. It's basically what he said is, if you were to learn the flute brand new, you should learn offset G. His theory is that every single player will play faster with a smoother technique on an offset G. So you can imagine this becomes quite a becomes quite a, quite a heated topic in the flute community. And the flute community, that'll be a podcast episode in itself. The flute community is wild. There is a group on Facebook called Flute Forum. It is a roller coaster in that group. And when I went into the search function and went, oh, offset G versus inline G, oh, fuck me. It was insane what was going on in those comments. People are vicious fuckers to each other. It's wild. So, yeah, the food community takes things very seriously. Robert Dick, actually, little caveat, little story for everyone who's not in the food world, I mean, those are, um, got a little burst of fame outside the foot world because he appeared on the it was either the Fallon or the Kimmel show they were digging out like old books and a feature they had on the show and they found a flute book and it was by Robert Dick and it had a picture of him in the, like the 80s and he made a joke about him I don't know your surname's Dick you know you, you've got it coming it's on the tin yeah my name's Houston his name's Houston I've got I've got it all it's not as bad as Dick to be fair but I've got it all you know so I get it but if you're recognizing the name Robert Dick that's where it's coming from so he suggests offset G is categorically better. Is he right? Am I going to disagree with one of the most prominent flute players in recent history? God damn right. No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. Right, let's get into the history of this. Okay, let's dig into this. If you follow me down this path here, stick with me on this. I'm going to get down the history. I'm going to explore both sides. I have a really, really good point for the reason why... Um, don't know what that was. Um, the reason why... In 9G could potentially be better, okay? And I have a really good reason it's not talked about enough. But follow me down this, follow me down this hole together, okay? I'm going to give you some context. We're going to go right back to the start. So the flute, we know the flute, uh, we know the flute is the oldest instrument in the world. Or if you don't, you do now. There's flutes going back thousands of years. Now, when we say flute, we're talking a tube with holes and something you can blow in, okay? Now, please. Do not send me any euphemisms, flute euphemism jokes. I have heard them all. You're going to hear me talking about blowing into things. You're going to hear me talking about fingering things. Please grow up. I've heard it all before. Really, I really have. If anyone can think of an original uh, flute innuendo, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a prize. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. I, I, give, you, I give you 20 quid. Anyway, flute's the oldest instrument. Generally speaking, it used to just have six holes. You covered the fingers with your hose. One, two, three, four, five, six. That was the general structure. Little by little, over time, people started adding keys. Or the buttons, for those not aware. Now, the keys, what they did was just let us add an extra note here or there. Specifically, in between the six holes, there are smaller notes in shorter distance. So B, A, G, F, E, D. We can get things in between the B and the A. B flat, for example. So one or two keys were added on. It grew to three, it grew to four over hundreds of years. Until finally in 1847, a German fellow called Theobald Boehm redoes the whole thing. He designs this brand new flute called the Boehm system. This, covered in keys, 
covered in different areas to play. The holes are in different spaces. There's buttons that don't get pressed down with your fingers. It is a marvel of a design. And we still use it now. It is the system that we all use now. So Bowen comes along and he designs this flute in 1847. Now, interestingly, Offset G is only coming back into fashion in the last 20 years or so, if at all. Um, Bowen designed his original flute as an Offset G. This is true, okay? You can go look up the original designs that Bohm had for his flute. He had an offset G. He also had an open G sharp, okay, which is a very strange thing. And something I'm trying to do a bit of research on. I've never played one. My teacher of mine used to have one. But an open G sharp, essentially, G sharp key is here. When at its resting position, the hole that it opens is closed. So you press it to open it. That is why it's called a closed G sharp. He had it as an open G sharp, meaning this was open all the time. That means for all the flute players out there, G and G sharp were reversed. So if you play an open G sharp flute, the finger for G sharp is G and vice versa, okay? One of the reasons why he finds the closed G sharp, which is now standard, so bizarre is because it's one of the few times in the flute where you put a finger down, but the pitch goes up. So B, A, G, G sharp, it'll lift up, okay? One of the few times that we put a finger down, but the note gets higher. You find it counterintuitive. I don't know why we stuck with closed G-sharp. It is just much smoother in the fingers. And also, both pinky fingers on both hands have the same effect. Pressing keys that are closed down. So you get used to it. He also, interestingly, actually had the B-flat thumb key here. For the food players here, sorry. Um, this is a B key. This is a B-flat key. He had them reversed as well, originally, for the same reason. That you went higher to the head, but the, note, the tone went down. He found that strange. So, like, the way we have it now is strange. So yeah, when we're following the inline versus offset debate, we're started. The guy who invented the flute essentially wanted offset. Okay, so how do we, yeah, how do we get lost from this so quickly? Well, rock up Louis Lot. Now, I'm pronouncing that terribly. I am so sorry to all my French followers or anyone French watching. I do speak French and I know it's Louis Lou, but... Louis Lot is what we know it as, okay? So I'm going to refer to it as Louis Lot. Anyway, Louis Lot is the Stradivarius of flutes, okay? He's in Paris in the mid-1800s. He's whacking out these gorgeous instruments. He has taken Bohm's design, added superior craftsmanship and just a beautiful idea of how to build the flute. And he's making excellent flutes, okay? And he becomes the maker. And even to this day, to track down a Louis Lot flute, it's our Stradivarius, okay? Some of them are shit, to be honest, but most of them are incredible. They're incredible instruments and... Yeah, he rightly had this massive reputation as being the maker of flutes. But one little problem Louis had was the extra rod that I talked about earlier to make an offset G. It was a lot more work. It took more time. So he cuts it out, puts the Gs in line. He can fire out an extra couple of flutes a day. So he's firing out flutes. They're all made excellently. The only thing that is a bit different is the inline G. Nobody really seems to mind. We accept it as standard. Away we go. Other makers start copying them. Okay, right up to now. A lot of the modern flute companies' designs can be traced back to Louis Lot or in some kind of fashion. Some variation on Louis Lot. So they copy him. They copy the inline G. That's it. It becomes fashion. It becomes tradition. Okay. So that's the history of it, more or less up until now, um, we'll say up until 20 years ago. So essentially up until 20 years ago, inline G was the standard. Offset G gets released as a student thing. 
For smaller hands, for kids, they release this thing called offset G. Um, for a long time, it was known as the student option. And when you get better and you get to a professional level, you get an inline G flute. Okay, so that's where we're sort of standing with it. Still at the minute, um, UK is moving slowly towards the offset G. It's becoming very popular. America has went that way. No surprise. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make fun of Americans too much. I promise. I really promise. I'm gonna do my best not to. France sticks with the inline G. France rocks one with the inline G. Still does to this day. Slowly starting to go the other way, but the majority of players there. Italy's the same. The majority of players. Old Europe sticks to the inline. The new world is going for offset, and the UK does what America tells it to. So. What are the main differences? Well, we've talked about them already. Um, with the extra mechanism, the in the offset G is a little bit heavier. Now, we're talking minute. I've heard this as an argument as to why inline G is better. I don't buy it. It's so minute, the weight difference. I don't think it's going to affect the sound. Now, I believe that I looked everywhere to find more information on this. The internet is hard to find info on this. Um, but Stephen Vassar, who was the president of Powell, I don't think he is anymore, but I could be wrong. So... If, if he is, apologies, Stephen. I was viewing an old article and I didn't do, I didn't go any further than that in my research. But anyway, he does admit it makes a sound difference, but it's too subtle for the human ear to hear. So let's throw that one out the window, okay? Now, the offset, easier to repair because you just can remove it independently from the rest of the flute. I get that. Now, that's a good argument. We'll give a point to the offset there. Um... And it also puts less weight and strain on the main rod because it's not attached, okay? So you generally have less problems with the flute, okay? Hand size, yeah. People argue that if you have big hands, you play inline. That could be true. I have what I believe to be regular sized hands. I play inline. I can play offset. I don't really, I don't feel a difference in comfort. So, but everyone's unique. So if it works for you, it works for you. Now, yeah. This is a part of my this is a part of my research where it looks like I've kind of I've lost the plot here a little bit, but I have written down that all signs point to offset being better. Okay, so technically speaking, offset G looks to be better. Now it is important to say no one single thing, no one single thing at all can categorically improve every single flute player's technique. There is no one size fits all with the instrument, with any instrument, or with any. Anything that involves high-level performance, this goes for sport as well. There's nothing that maxes it all, okay? So it's really important to say that. It's a very, very nuanced and personal combination to skills, and there are endless factors that affect technique and the quality of technique, how fast you can play and how well you can play. Now, um, I do have a point for the inline G, okay? Now, I have a really big point. Um, and I think it's trivialized. This reason for playing inline G. And I think it's sort of laughed at and viewed as like a stupid reason and doesn't have merit. I'm going to disagree with it. There is a psychological effect to having what we perceive as a professional instrument. Okay? Now be that you perceive it as professional, you're copying your teacher's flute, or you feel you're part of some kind of tradition of excellence. You know, all these great flute players play inline G. Now that is important to remember. Most of the the old school players, old school, the greats, okay, up until the young talents of the current world, right up to people in the young, you know, in their twenties and thirties now, nearly every great flute player has played in line G, and the great ones of the day still do. Now, they're pretty educated in this thing, so they know what they're talking about. So we shouldn't jump against it. 
But the psychological effect of having a professional instrument or feeling part of this tradition is huge and it genuinely can affect performance and it can affect your perception of how good a musician you are. This is not me talking shite. I do talk shite a lot, but this isn't one of those examples, okay? The strength of superstition. This is essentially what it is. We're along the lines of superstition here. I have actually spent an hour talking about this downstairs. I've recorded another podcast called the England B Team Football Podcast, where you've talked about superstition and sports psychology. So it's part of that research that I find myself here. Now, the research from that applies to music. Sport and music are very similar things. In psychology okay you do something repetitively for a long time you train and train for relatively speaking a very short per, uh, period of time to perform okay so you practice a piece of music for six months to perform it in a concert you train for six months to play in a cup final it's the same thing it really is they're very very similar the psychology of it is incredibly similar now we're going to talk about superstitions and we might call them superstitions we can also call them pre-performance routines psychological benefits we can call it visualization there's lots of words for it okay from what i'm trying to get to but it's all the same umbrella so i'm going to start with a guy called timothy galloway okay now, timothy galloway wrote a book called the inner game of tennis in 1974 i think now obviously it's a book about tennis but i cannot recommend a book more to any musician than that book now there is a series that spun off at the inner game of music the inner game of business blah 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 blah, blah. don't read any of them they're all shite inner game of tennis just read it just think anytime it says the word tennis just think flute or think whatever you're trying to do okay it applies directly it is an incredible book the inner game the basic theory of it is there are two games to high performance there is the outer game so the actual physical thing that we're doing in our case playing a concert or playing the flute and the inner game the psychological battle that goes on with the athlete or performer in their own mind and that sounds like it might be a bit mumbo jumbo, but it's not. Take a two very to the two extremes of that phenomenon and the inner game. The two extremes are choking. Okay, so you've practiced, you've done all the work, you've done everything, and you just make a balls of it. You just you 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 screw it up. Okay, it happens. There's times where you've done everything right, and you get in and you just fuck it up. It happens. And on the other side, there's this thing called the zone, or flow, is it not word we're using quite a lot for it, um, where it just feels like everything is working. You've had, we've all had those days where you've woken up and practiced, or if you're not a musician, you've woken up and done something in your work or in your life where it just seems to work. You're on a roll and it's going from idea to idea and it's effortless and you're just sparking. That's a real thing and it's a very powerful thing. Imagine if you could get that feeling every time you performed. How much better of a musician would you be if you knew every single time you performed or auditioned or did anything like that, you were going to be in that state of flow. You were going to be in the zone. It would change your life. This is the kind of level we're talking about. So the inner game is very important. And winning the inner game is a big part of being a musician. And part of that is pre-performance routines, superstitions, etc., etc. Now, superstitions... You know, whether you have them or you don't, they have their merit. They have been researched and proven to reduce anxiety, improve self-confidence, and ultimately enhance performance as long as they're done to a level. There is a point where the superstition, where it can be detrimental, and that's essentially the point where instead of you controlling it, it controls you. Okay, but superstitions are proven to be incredibly powerful. The new word for them is pre-performance routines because with sports psychologists and performance psychologists, we've realized how we can harness this and use it in a positive okay i'm sure we all have pre-performance routines okay we've all done little things before that we think are going to affect the outcome of our performance 
And they might seem crazy, but they're not. If it works for you, it works. I can tell you crazy ones from sport, but they work. Okay? Um, you might, if you've studied music to a high level, or you've went to, I don't know, you've done some kind of course, you've studied with a great teacher or something like that, you've got to that level where you're starting to make it a career, you might have studied things like visualization and mental imagery. These are the same thing. The power of these things is very, very clear. Okay? Now, this is where I'm going to tie it back to inline G. So please follow me in this. I'm going to use myself as a as an example. My flute here, this beautiful inline G Sankyo, I got that in Paris about eight years ago. Okay, up till then I played in an offset G Miyazawa silver flute, great instrument. But when I decided to upgrade my flute, finally, I didn't have the money for a great gold flute, but I wanted a gold flute. I always wanted to play on gold, and I wanted inline G, and I wanted C foot. Okay, and there's a couple of reasons for that, but the gold was because all my teachers played on gold. Okay, and James Galway playing on gold, and I'm from Belfast, Jimmy's from Belfast, he was an idol growing up, so I wanted to play on gold to be like them. Okay, and I wanted an inline G for the same reason. Okay, all my teachers in Paris played on it, I thought they were the best flute players I've ever heard in my life, and I thought maybe that's part of it. Um, it's not. But I will say, to this day, the feeling of the inline G and having a gold flute gives me such confidence. It is a mental, it's, a, it's an imagery thing for me, it's a visualization tool. It is a very powerful effect on me. That's something I do not regret whatsoever. And I genuinely believe that the benefits that that has brought me in terms of self-confidence, reducing anxiety, enhancing performance, it outweighs any kind of potential improvement in technique from the offset G. For me personally. So that's where I'm going to come to my conclusion. We're going to wrap this up because we'll go on this for all day. But neither is right. Okay, let's bear this in mind. There is no right answer. Inline G or offset G. If anyone tells you the right answer, they are talking shite. There is no right answer for everybody. There just isn't. If there was, none of us would be having this argument. Okay? And there are great points on both sides. Okay? The reason, yeah, I've told you why I play my flute. I recommend all my students to play on offset, to be totally honest, if they're given the choice between two identical flutes. And that's also if they have no attachment to inline G. However, if they did prefer inline in any way, I would recommend that they do it and take an inline G flute if I think the reason for it psychologically outweighed any potential positives from the offset G. Okay? So it has to be looked at on an individual basis. You really have to look at it yourself. But the main point I'm trying to make here is if you want to play on an inline G because you really want to and you think it looks cool and it makes you feel part of some kind of like long tradition of excellence or it gives you some kind of feeling when you play it, do it. It's for you then. Okay? Just do it. So that's it. That's the inline G talk done. Okay? I hope you've all got something from that. Okay? Next up. I'm going to wrap this up, okay? I've got about 10 minutes left here. I'm going to get out of here. This has been a great first episode. I've got a really fun feature for you now, though, okay? Part of this podcast I want to do is to cover album reviews. Now, when I review an album, I am not going to be reading albums, okay? I do not believe in reading albums. It's art. I'm not going to read it because it's very personal, and I do not want people going about saying he thinks it's only a 7 out of 10 as if I think it's technically less than something else. I'm not doing it. But I am going to review albums. I'm going to tell you why I love them. I was going to do one album review and I didn't really know where to get started. And then I started looking at an old album and I thought maybe my first album or a new album. And then that fucking thing came in. 
something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. So this is my first album review. I'm going to be quickly giving short reviews to four of my favourite records. Something old, which will be my first ever flute album that I remember buying. Something new, i.e. a flute record that I've listened to in the last year. Something borrowed, which to be honest, in the era of streaming that I've grown up in, it's more recommended, we'll say, because I didn't get a physical copy, but borrowed, we'll use that. And something blue is something with a blue cover. That was a fun one to look for. So, hopefully in the post set, I'm going to get like little, the album cover will be here or here. Here, probably. We'll go for it there. Something old. I'm going to be reviewing quickly my first ever album that I remember buying for myself. Okay, my first food album I bought. Um, and it's not what you think it is. Okay, I think a lot of people are going to assume it's James Galway. I did listen to a lot of Galway growing up, obviously, but it's not. My first food album was by a superb food player called Raffaele Trevisani, an Italian guy. And it was one of his albums called The Virtuoso Flute. Um, it's a superb album. Okay, it was released in 2005 and it's actually flute and piano. The whole album is flute and piano and it's recorded with his wife playing piano. Now, I have to say, one of the bigger pieces that the program is excellent. The actual choice of the repertoire, choosing what he wants to play on, it's excellent. And it appealed a lot to me as a teenager. It was flashy, virtuosic. It was so romantic with a capital R. Romantic is in just heavy emotion. Um, and that just really appealed to 13-year-old me. When I wanted to buy my first album, I remember finding this, checking it out on iTunes, playing the little sample, going, oh, I want a bit of that. Downloaded it. And still one of the albums I listen to frequently. Superb. It's superb. Um, it feels like a recital. Okay, so it feels almost like a live recording and it feels like he's almost played it in order. I don't know the background of the recording sessions. If he did record it all in one day or how long it took, but it has a live energy to it, which is great. It, it's When I say that, it almost sounds like I'm saying it's purely recorded. That is not true. It's just, it's got the feeling of being live. It's got a raw energy to it, which I really appreciate. Um, this was my first time really listening to a flute player outside Jimmy Galway. Now, I have to say, if you go listen to this record, you'll find it's very similar to James Galway. Sorry for people who don't know who James Galway is. Sir James Galway, go Google him, okay? Best food pair of all time, came from Belfast, played in the Berlin Philharmonic, etc., etc. I'll do an episode on him someday, but yeah. So, first time I'd ever listened to something that wasn't Jimmy Galway, but it's very similar. You're going to find this. The articulation is very similar. It's clean as a bell. It is pinpoint articulation. The sound is very brilliant, and I don't mean brilliant, brilliant, I mean brilliant as in it vibrates so quick, it's so present, it's so in your face, it's so wow. Um, he does play on a gold flute, you can hear that. This really, really fast vibrato, or vibrato, that just whizzes through it. It's proper Galway, it's proper, oh, it's the best way I can describe it. Even does that thing that Galway does where when he's playing like a big long scale going up, instead of going da 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 you go da-da-da-da-da-da, that rubato that he puts at the start that Jimmy did in later years. It's all there. So it sounds very like a James Galway record. It's about 95% similar to Galway. But the missing, that extra 5% that isn't there, with Galway, it's quintessential Galway. Okay, it's that little 5% that makes Galway so special and so different but 
that isn't the takeaway that Trevisani's missing that 5%. The 5% he has is very different. It's got this warmth and a humility to it that um, just stands him apart from Galway. So that's my recommendation for an album. Go find it out. It's called The Virtuoso Flute. The track to go check out, I recommend, is Go For The Carmen Fantasy. That's my favourite one on the record. It's actually titled in French. I think it's Fantasy Bignanges sur Thème de Calmen. Look for Carmen, or the one that starts with fantasy. For non-flute players, it's taken all the themes from the opera Carmen. You know them. Take 10 minutes of your life and go listen to that song, that track. It changes every few minutes to a different tune. You'll recognise a lot of them, and it condenses all the big things of the opera into 10 minutes, but as a showpiece, just to show off how good you are at the flute. So it's very virtuosic. It's brilliant. Okay, something new. Let's rifle through these. I'm trying to get this done in the next 10 minutes. Not even. Five minutes. Eight minutes. Um... New album. I am going to be going for an album by Josephine Olek. Okay. Now it's not one of her own records. Okay. It's a record that she features on with a couple of other concertos, Mozart concertos. So there is a violin concerto one there. There's a few other things. Um, it was released in 2022, last year. So we'll call that new in the flute word. So her name is Josephine Olek. Um, I think it's with the. I'm going to have to check this out now. Um. It is with the Vienna Orchestra, I think. Um, yeah, I'll get it in a minute. But anyway, she plays the Mozart G Major Concerto on it. Okay, obviously a classic concerto. Um, that's the only track she plays on it. The rest, as I said, is other albums and other concertos. Um, I cannot find that. I had to see it. It's hard to find. Okay, I'm going to put the link in the description. Okay. Because, and you'll get the wee picture up here, but it's hard to find because if you search her name, you actually don't get it in Spotify. But anyway, go listen to it, okay? She is a superb flute player. I, I mean, superb. A joy to listen to and a proper example of a modern flute player. For non-flute players, go and compare this record or a few seconds of this playing to Travis Hanny before. Night and day. Both excellent. Wouldn't choose between them. Um, so the defining quality of this recording, of this Mozart concerto recording, is energy it is bursting with energy it is so lively it's vibrant it's very colorful it's very playful it's just it's scintillating it's really just all there i think it's a very fresh and modern take on articulation and ornamentation there's a few things in it that just feel new they feel they're not new of course there's no new anymore with mozart it's been about for hundreds of years but the way she approaches it and the variation she has in it, it feels very fresh. It feels very different, but not for the sake of it. There's very little ego in her playing. It's not like that at all. It's just beautiful. It's very artistic. It's very shaped. She sounds like she's having a blast playing it. It really does sound very, very fun. The orchestral accompaniment is a little bit, it's contrasting and complementing. It's quite warm and it's quite subdued isn't quite the word, but it doesn't have the same energy, but that works well. Because it lets the flute just shine in terms of the colour and the action the articulation. But in terms of the actual colour of her sound, the warmth of the orchestra and the flute work together beautifully. It's almost like chamber music, which to me a lot of Mozart should sound like, or is good to sound like. The best compliment I can give it is it's exactly the way I would imagine the Mozart character from the film Amadeus. This is how I would imagine he wants his concerto played. So for me that's a pretty big compliment. If you haven't seen that move, movie, mate, go see Amadeus. It's cracking. It is actually cracker. It's brilliant. 
Go fucking watch Amadeus, alright? Forget about everything else we said. Anyway, must listen track of this record. First movement. There's three movements to a concerto. Um, I think it's track four in the record. Look for the one that says flute concerto. There's going to be three of them in a row that look like the same title because they're so long that you won't see the difference until the end. Pick the first one. The flute comes in after about a minute, for those who don't know. It's a really fresh shake on the first movement and it's superb. Go give it a listen, please. Something borrowed. Okay, internet generation. So, as I said earlier, uh, I didn't borrow a disc. Okay, I had this recommended to me. Um, so, it was the first album I sort of remember being told to go listen to on the stream. And it is an album by the Finnish repair Petri Alanko. Okay, and in the album, he plays the Eber Flute Concerto and the Nielsen Flute Concerto. Okay, these are, this is an album that I grew to really adore. Now, the first thing to say is this record, technically, is outstanding. It is fucking incredible, this record. The flute playing on it is unbelievable. I really have to, I cannot stress that enough. And I'm not putting too much importance in technicality in general, but this album, fuck me. So the articulation is clear as you like. There's so much edge to the sound. It's just so clear and present. Um, very high energy, very intense energy, almost uncomfortable. Um, the orchestra also has this huge energy that it pushes the flute with, which I often find is missing in, especially the Ebert Concerto, I find it's missing quite a lot. Um, I think maybe that's maybe stereotypes or ideas of what the flute can and can't do, but I always feel like it's lacking a little bit of energy. You know, I think the tempo is written as 120 in the first movement. I like it a wee bit more on the brisker side. The orchestra here pushes Alanko, it really does, and it is fast. It's nearly uncomfortable to listen to how much they're going against each other. It's fucking fantastic because he really keeps up. It's it's brilliant. It's very high energy. Um, it's got that feeling that you always feel like the music's going like that. You never feel like, even though it's chugging along, it's going at tempo, you always feel like the tempo is just ahead of where it even is. It's always just going a little bit faster. It always wants to go that way. It's incredible. Try and see if you can find that and let me know if I'm talking shite or not, but I really get that feeling with it. So go listen to that record, okay? Petri Alanko um, with the Swedish Radio Orchestra, the Finnish Radio Orchestra, one of the two. I should have checked this. Anyway, picture's going to be up here. It'll be in the description as well. The track that you have to listen to, first movement of the Ebert Concerto, okay? Go to the Concerto for Flute by Ebert, I-B-E-R-T. Listen to the first movement. It's quite short. It's a couple of minutes, four or five minutes or something. Blistering. Absolutely blistering. Superb. One of my favourite records of all time. I actually got a signed copy a few years ago from a friend who um, was Finnish and when she back home she got me a very kind gift of meeting Petri and getting that signed for me. It's one of my favourite records of all time. It's brilliant. Last album review, Something Blue. Okay, I'm going to go off track here. Flute players especially, listen up to this one. Because there's one flute player you should all be listening to. It's this guy. My Something Blue is an album called The Ravishing Genius of Bones by a fellow called Brian Finnegan. Go look up Brian Finnegan. Now, this is not classical music, this is Irish traditional music, but with a, a very modern flavor to it. Now, Brian Finnegan, he's got one solo record, this is it. You might also know him from a band called Fluke, or as well, he had a brief period, a band called Can, K-A-N. Um, but this is solo record, okay? Now, he's not actually playing flute on this. He does play flute in a lot of bands, but in this one, he's playing whistles. So Irish whistle, but still, Go listen to this, okay? He uses a variety of whistles, um, low, high, different keys. Um, he'll mix his own compositions of tunes with um, 
standard Irish music to make different sets. Um, the key thing for anyone who's not a traditional Irish music player, who has never listened to traditional Irish music, is the ornamentation. Really listen to it. And in fact, I am going to I'm going to tell you the different pieces in one of the tracks. I'm going to put the sheet music up, or yeah, I'll put a link for the sheet music on how to contact me to get it. Okay, for what it is without ornamentation. Contact me and ask for it. Read it as you listen along to the track, and you will hear how much extra stuff he is putting into it. It is every note it is incredible when you actually read the music you're like is that the same thing it's unbelievable the quality of it the the nuance in the artic in the ornamentation and the articulation as well actually is incredible um there's also an extra level of artistry in the way that he layers the the whistles so he'll do multi-track recordings and he'll layer different whistles on top of each other there's an artistry in the way he uses that it's it's beautiful just when you're getting to the point where you're maybe a little bit bored of the tune he'll add something different to it to really freshen up and keep your interest going before he changes um and the arrangements are excellent as well some of the playing on it with the other instruments is superb so the must listen track on that one i do love night ride the last tune but my favorite is going to be belfast okay it's a track called belfast there's three tunes to it okay so there's three different pieces within that track at the start you have a tune called back to belfast okay it's a reel you can even search into the session or Google back to Belfast of the session and you'll find the sheet music for it. At 1 minute 45, he switches to just after 1 minute 45. Put it to 1 minute 45. Give yourself that wee three seconds to let it switch. You'll hear the switch. He switches to a tune called Anne Lacey's, which is another reel. Um, again, search in Google Anne Lacey's, the session, or yeah, in the description, check it out. And then at 3 minutes 18, he switches to the last tune, which is called Eroticon 4 okay that is a reference to i think it's hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i don't know i've never watched it um someone can confirm that i could confirm it now but i can't be arsed though but anyway yeah go and search that one as well if you put the session afterwards the session.org is a website if you google the name of your tune followed by the session you will find every irish piece ever written so go check it out and yeah, I seriously recommend for anyone who can read sheet music to follow the sheet music along to see what he does extra. For those who can't, just go and enjoy it. And specifically wait for those moments at 1.45 and 3.18 when he switches the tunes. It's unbelievable. It's They're gorgeous music. It's it's incredible. Out of the four albums here, I think musically that's the best. For me, for my own taste. It's different level of musicianship. Right, lads, we are... Lads and ladies, we are well into this podcast i think it's time to wrap this up yeah i i'm throwing in the towel this has been so much fun this has been so much fun i am so so fucking nervous but i'm glad it's done so here thank you all or thank you anyone if you're still listening to this now thank you for making it this far it's really appreciated if one person gets to the end of this i will be absolutely delighted so I'll be back soon with another episode. If you have any ideas for episodes, any topics you want me to cover, anything you want me to discuss, that includes albums, it includes performances, topics in the flute world, people who are non-flute players, if there's any questions you want to ask me about the flute, get in. Pedagogical questions. Is there anything you want to know how to do on the flute? Is there any questions you have about technique or repertoire or interpretation? Fire them all in. We'll cover them in the podcast, okay? Hopefully in the next podcast, in the episode, I will be able to cover your request, your requests and your questions and all that stuff and then get on to my next theme. So I don't know what it is yet. I'm going to see how this one goes on first. So cheers, everyone. It's super appreciated. Um, 
if you listen the whole way through, please go stick a five-star rating in wherever you're listening to this. Give it a thumbs up on YouTube. It just helps the algorithm. It gets the ball rolling. Um, it helps me out a lot to try and get visibility on this. If you've enjoyed listening to me talk shite, go check out the England B-Team podcast. That's a football podcast hosted by me and Joe Edwards. Same kind of shit, just talking about football. Um, yeah, find me on social media. To be honest, go and get me on Instagram, please. It's uh, Gareth Houston Flute. Get me on Instagram, okay? I am on Facebook. Find me a message there too, but to be honest, everything that goes on Facebook is just reposts from Instagram. I'm not a fan of Facebook. Um, who knows, maybe one day I'll get a TikTok too. But if you want to ask me questions, that's where to get me. Or go to my website, www.garethhouston.com. You can find information on me there, and if you want to get in touch, you can do it that way. Or just leave it in the comments on the YouTube video to this podcast. Whatever way you want. Right, guys, I'm getting out of here. It's been a blast. Thank you so much, and yeah, keep her lit.